Dear Heavenly Father, please quieten our hearts and our minds so we can focus solely on you and your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Bible reading today is taken from Genesis 28, 10-22. Jacob left Bathsheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God, and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. This is the word of the Lord. Great. Good morning. Please keep your Bibles open as we continue our Genesis series on Jacob. Well, Pastor Son was a uh, Korean minister in World War II. He was a mild little man, less than five feet tall. Uh, in 1940, he was a chaplain at a leprosarium near Yosu. He was responsible for the well-being of a thousand leprosy sufferers and their families. But when Japan invaded Korea, all Koreans were forced to bow down not only to the Japanese flag, but to also participate in Shinto worship and rituals. But as a Christian, Pastor Sun couldn't do that. And so he was sent to prison, and his two sons were kicked out of their school. When the war was over, now Pastor Sun was released from prison. His sons got back to school, only then to find themselves in the throes of a communist uprising. So in October 1948, communist youth seized the school his sons were going to. And a 19-year-old communist boy kills his two sons in broad daylight. Two days later, the National Army sent in to restore peace in the city. They managed to arrest a number of people, including Chai Son, the 19-year-old communist boy who killed Pastor Son's kids. As Choi Son went, uh, waited, uh, awaited trial, he was certain that he would receive the death penalty. And I can't help but wonder whether Chai Son, as he waited his trial, regretted his actions, whether killing two innocent boys in broad daylight was really worth it, and as his parents were there, whether they regretted him, whether he felt that they were going to abandon him and even disown him. Was it really worth it? Now, if you remember back to the last couple of weeks as we've studied Jacob's life in Genesis, Jacob's done some horrible things too, hasn't he? He hasn't murdered anyone like Choi Sun, but he's torn his family apart. 
From the moment he was born, he was literally a heel grabber, a deceiver. And in the first story we read about him, he took advantage of his older brother Esau and bought his birthright with a bowl of lentil stew. But it gets worse. Years later, as we saw last week, while his dad thinks he's on his deathbed, Jacob dresses up like Esau, cons his dad into giving him the blessings of the firstborn. And so Esau's furious and wants to kill Jacob, but his mum finds out about it and sends Jacob away by manipulating his dad. So yet the astonishing thing is that despite all that Jacob had done, Isaac blesses Jacob with the blessings and promises of God. Probably not so much willingly, but because he knew there wasn't any point in fighting against God's will anymore. The older will serve the younger. And so when we get to today's passage, Jacob's on the run. Behind him awaited the fury of his older brother Esau, and ahead of him was the great unknown. So verse 10, please have your Bibles open and follow along with me. Jacob left Bathsheba and set out for Haran. Now, Haran was about 800 kilometers to the northeast of Beersheba, about the same distance from Melbourne to Sydney. That's the journey Jacob was going to take. And Jacob's on the run. He has Esau's birthright. But he must have been wondering, I would suspect, was it all worth it? Was all the deception and the conning and the conniving and the deception worth it? Because as a 40-year-old man, he was still mummy's boy who had the world at his feet. Jacob now instead finds himself in the woods all alone. You see, leaving his parents meant leaving behind the life of a prince because his family was rich and powerful. Abraham, if you remember, his granddad, had the power even of a small army at his disposal in Genesis 14. And his dad, Isaac, was considered more powerful than even Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, in Genesis 26. Jacob came from a powerful and rich family, so he might have the birthright, the blessings, but that now appears all in the past. For he now is all alone, probably only with a staff and maybe a small satchel bag, with some oil and some supplies, like we see in verse 19. But that's about it. He might have the birthright and the blessings in theory, but in practice, Esau had it all back at home. And as he makes his way to meet his uncle Laban, he's all alone. He might have the blessings of the firstborn, but was it all worth it? Because ahead of him was a great unknown. Not only was the journey potentially dangerous, but he didn't even know if his, Laban, his uncle Laban was still alive. That's why in the next chapter, as we'll see, he asked the shepherds at the well, is he well? He doesn't even know if Laban is alive. And so because he listened to his conniving mother, deceived his dying father, stole his brother's blessing, Jacob doesn't sleep in the comfort of his tent, attended by his servants and protected by his people. He sleeps all alone by a stone all by himself, unprotected, all by himself, vulnerable, under the starry night. And so verse 11, when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. Jacob, the homeboy, was now the camper in the great outdoors. But before he nods off, he grabs a stone. Do you notice that? But he actually didn't put it under his head to use it as a pillow because literally 
it actually says he put the stone near the head. Now, why would uh, Jacob put a stone near the head, near, near his head? Well, it's most likely for protection. So that if anyone or anything would lurk up to him in the middle of the night, he would have a weapon, as it were, to use to defend himself. And so worse than leaving behind the life of a prince and the worries of the life to come in the land of Haran, Jacob was all alone, defenseless and helpless. With the terrible weight of being hated by his brother and the uncertain future of meeting his uncle, he was alone, helpless and unprotected. He didn't have anyone to talk to. He couldn't get out his tablet and sign into Facebook or grab his iPhone and call a mate. Jacob was alone in the unknown. And it's in this context that God reveals himself to Jacob. And he does this in two ways. By his presence and by his promise. We see God's presence from verse 12. Jacob had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord. Now a few nights ago I had a vivid dream and I can still remember it. It was raining and I was standing on the, on the street by the gutters and it was pouring rain and the gutter was filling up with water and I was just staring at the water, the stream of water and I was wondering what do I do? Do I step over it or I step into it? I was wearing flip-flops and so what did I decide to do in the dream? I decided to slip into the stream of water and what happened? Well, in the dream I slipped and fell but in real life I jerked and woke up and then I realized I'm an interpreter of dreams because I realized I needed to go to the toilet. We all have dreams, but Jacob's dream was quite unique, wasn't it? It was different because he didn't see a stream of water. He saw God himself. But the question is, what does it all mean? What, is, what did Jacob's dream mean? Now I have a picture of Jacob and his dream on the screen. I'm not sure if you've seen many of these uh, pictures and depictions of Jacob's dream before, but this one, uh, and quite a few of them actually, particularly from the Renaissance period, has him lying down in, awkward, in an awkward position. Like, I don't know who sleeps like that, but he's sleeping like that, half naked. He's in the middle of nowhere, unprotected. I'm not sure whether that would be the way he would dress and the way he would lay down. You see, the problem with dreams and pictures is that people can read all sorts of things into it and interpret it in all sorts of ways and depict it with their own imagination. And so the question is, when we read of Jacob's dreams, you come across lots of different people with different interpretations. So which one's the right one? Well, the right one is the one that God tells us is the right one, you see. Since God gives Jacob the dream... And God is the one who appears to Jacob in the dream. Well, we need God to interpret the dream for us as well. It's all God. That's why God doesn't just appear to Jacob. You see, God also speaks to Jacob in the dream. Verse 13 to 15 is where we see that. And that's why we must understand the presence of God in the dream in the context of the promises of God in the dream. And that's what we'll look at now. Now, there are two things I want you to notice. 
when God speaks in the dream. The, the first one is that God is the one who keeps his promises. So have a look at it with me from verse 13. There above it, the stairway, was the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I'll give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you'll spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. When Jacob was all alone and on the run, he wasn't even looking for God. He was looking for a wife. At this point, you really have to wonder whether God should even bother with this guy, right? Because he's probably wondering himself. He's been a, a, a despicable person. And so just as Chison was wondering whether his parents would abandon him and disown him, Jacob might be wondering as well, with all that he has done, will God now abandon me? But no, what we see is that even though despite his true colours being revealed, despite his deception, his soul-destroying nature, we can understand why God might want to change his mind and choose Esau and not Jacob. But God isn't like us. He doesn't choose based on merit but on grace, not on performance but on promise. And so God chose Jacob and not Esau before they were born, before any of them did anything good or bad. And so God takes the initiative. He reaches out to Jacob. He keeps his promise because God's determined to reverse the curse of sin and he'll do that in spite of Jacob's sins. And so the promise made to Abraham and Isaac and now made to Jacob the third patriarch, the last of the patriarchs. Do you notice the promises of land, of offspring, of blessings, Lob, We see it again. The promises made to Abraham was then made to Isaac and is now made to Jacob. God will keep his promises in spite of their sins. Jacob left his parents with nothing, but God's going to bless him with everything, even though he doesn't deserve it. And so Jacob must be wondering, well, sure, God, you're saying that. You're giving me the promises, but how do I know that you will keep your promises? Because I'm in the great outdoors, but I'm more of a homeboy than someone who can protect himself like Bear Grylls. I'm on a journey that's 800 kilometers away. I'm scared. I'm terrified. I'm going to Haran. I'm going to see my uncle. I don't know if he's alive. How do I know that you'll keep your promise? How do I know that you'll even keep me safe? How do I know that I'll even return home? And so this leads me to my second point in God's promises. Because God doesn't just promise him these amazing promises that he'd given to Abraham and Isaac. God now promises that he'll be with Jacob. That God's presence will be with him. So when Jacob was at his lowest, he was suffering under the weight of his own sin and the hatred of his own brother. God was ready to encourage him and to lift him up, to remind him that God is with him. And you see, even though Jacob must have felt all alone, Jacob wasn't alone. God was with him and will be with him. So verse 15, I'm with you and I'll watch over you wherever you go and I'll be, bring you back to this land. I'll not leave you until I have done what I promised. Now this is a remarkable promise, isn't it? No matter where Jacob goes, even as far as Haran, God will be with him. And no matter how long he goes for, God will bring him back. That's why the staircase is a two-way street with angels ascending and descending on it. You see, the bridge between God in heaven and humans on earth 
have now been bridged. And so God God can and will be with Jacob. And Jacob will always have access to God. That's why the angels feature so prominently in the dream, because angels are messengers. They carry God's word or message to God's people. And it will be by God's word that Jacob will know and remember God's promises. But angels are also ministering spirits to serve those who inherit salvation. We know this from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. And so the angels will serve to protect Jacob, to keep him safe in all his travels, and bring him home to the promised land. And so, now that we've understood the dream, that we know of God's presence and promise in Jacob's life, well, how, how does Jacob respond? Well, in his dream, he found himself in the presence of God, and he received the promises of God. And the way he responds are in those two parts as well. When he wakes up, he acknowledges the presence of God, and he responds to the promises of God. So verse 16, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I wasn't aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Now remember the stone that he put by his head for protection. Well, guess what he uses now to acknowledge who protects him? He uses the stone for his own protection as now the pillar to recognize that God is the one who protects him. And he pours oil onto it to consecrate, anoint it, to set it apart, to mark out that this is a special place because this is where he's realized that God is his great protector, that God is with him. And so he calls the place Bethel, which means house of God. So verse 18, early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. And so Jacob acknowledges the presence of God with a pillar. And he goes on to respond to the promises of God by making a vow in verse 20. Now, in the Old Testament, there's nothing inherently wrong with making vows. Last year, in our series on 1 Samuel, we saw that Hannah made a vow. And she kept her vow when God gave her a son, and she dedicated him in service of God. Vows are okay, but not so much in this case. Notice how Jacob makes a vow. Verse 20, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey, I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I'll give you a tenth. This is the first vow in the Bible. And it's not a very good one, is it? Despite God's unconditional promises, Jacob responds with a conditional vow. If you compare God's promises in verses 13 to 15 with Jacob's vow here in 20 to 22, you realize how gracious and generous God is and how calculative and self-centered Jacob is. And so verses 13 to 15, have a look at it. God says to Jacob, I am the Lord. 
I will give you, I am with you, I will watch over you, I'll bring you back, I'll not leave you. All of it is about what God will give and do for Jacob. It's for Jacob. But, But when Jacob responds with a vow, what does he say? If you will be with me, if you will watch over me, if you will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, if I return safely. You see, it's all about Jacob. He is just so self-centered. And it's only when he is satisfied then God will be his God. You see, this isn't a picture of a saint but of a scoundrel. Jacob is so self-centered that even when he sees God, the whole encounter isn't about God but is about himself. If it wasn't bad enough that he stole his brother's blessings, he's now bargaining with God. Instead of being overwhelmed by God's grace, he expresses doubt in God's ability. Instead of accepting God's word, he clarifies God's word. Instead of rejoicing in God's promises of protection and prosperity, he tries to nail God down. If you do all these things for me, then you'll be my God. Yet despite all of Jacob's shortcomings, despite his lack of faith and unwillingness to commit himself fully to God, and trust that God will keep his promises, God will still keep his promises in spite of Jacob's lack of faith. It just goes to show how undeserving Jacob is of God's grace, but how gracious God is, doesn't it? And even though it takes Jacob about 20 years before, he, before we see any real change in him in chapter 31, before he even declares God as his God in chapter 32, which we'll look at over the coming weeks. Jacob was a work in progress. Jacob didn't deserve God's promises. But so are we. Because we don't deserve God's grace either, do we? When Chai Sun was arrested by the National Army and was waiting trial, someone went to tell Pastor Sun about it. And so Pastor Son went to see him. When he got there, he saw Chai Son with his hands tied behind his back, hopeless and helpless, as he awaited his certain death. Pastor Son then went to the military commander in charge and said this, No amount of punishment will bring back my two sons. So what is it to be gained by this? Let me instead take the boy and make a Christian of him, so that he can do the work in the world that Tong In and Tong Sin left undone. Pastor Sun didn't want Chai Sun to pay for his crimes. Instead, he wanted to adopt Chai Sun as his own son. And so the commander released Chai Sun into, the, into Pastor Sun's custody. And you can just imagine the relief in Chai Sun's face. He expected judgment by trial and death by execution. But instead, he got grace and mercy. Pastor Sun had no way of knowing how Chai Sun would turn out. All he could do was to love him as he did his own sons, as God first loved him. He said, I thank God that he gave me the love to adopt as my son, the enemy who killed my dear sons. Years later, Chai Sun wrote to his adopted father saying, Not because I want to gain heaven or to escape hell, but because of your love I have come to believe in Christ. And as your eldest son, I shall do everything I can to follow after my two brothers in the footsteps of St. Paul. You see, friends, even though we don't know who God has predestined for salvation, 
What we do know is that no matter what we've done and said, no matter how much we've hurt God or others, there's hope. There's hope for you and me. There's hope for our friends and family. For the promises God made in Jacob are the promises we have in Jesus. When Jesus came and first called his disciples to follow him, Nathaniel recognized Jesus as the Son of God. And look at how Jesus responds in John 1.51. Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because what Jacob saw was now fulfilled in Jesus. For Jesus didn't come just to reveal God. He came to be the stairway to God. The bridge between God in heaven and man on earth has now been bridged. For the Son of God became the Son of Man to live the life we can't, to die the death we deserve, so that in him we might not only have the forgiveness of our sins, but all the promises of God which are yes in Christ. And so when we look back on our lives and we're still haunted by what we've done or said, and we're suffering the consequences of our sins like Jacob, we need to remember that there is no sin too big or too small that Jesus hasn't already nailed to the cross. We are forgiven. And if we're uncertain about our future and we're anxious about our work, or worried about our children and tentative about our finances, or concerned about our health and feeling hopeless and helpless, and all alone in the troubles of this world, we need to remember that we're not alone. For to us who believe in Jesus, God lives in us by his Spirit. As Ephesians 1, 13, 14 tells us, When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing the inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Friends, sometimes life is hard. We forget that God is with us, that he's there to strengthen us, to encourage us and to preserve us in Christ. Often it's when we look back at those challenging times that we realize that God's been there all along, hasn't he? Sometimes it could be the little things like the Christian friend who walked with us and prayed for us. Sometimes it's the silver linings and how things turned out better than we feared. And so friends, whatever challenges or hardships you're facing now, don't be like Jacob and doubting God's promises. He's not only with you by his Spirit, he's guaranteed your inheritance by his Spirit. So let's let God's grace move us to completely trust in him and not doubt. As Romans chapter 8, 38 reminds us, and we'll conclude with these words, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.